This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Oaf. Today on the podcast, we're presenting a story from our November 2018 show at Haymarket Brewing. This show is called The Passage, and this story, like the others presented at that show, talks about passing through in some way. The passage in this story is in celebration of May as Mental Health Awareness Month. Second Story is proud to present Megan Gwaltney. It was my job to keep everyone safe. At 21, I spent every night behind a locked bathroom door, cool linoleum beneath my knees. Praying wasn't enough. Instead, I visualized building a wall, brick by brick, around every loved one. When I finished, my mind whispered I'd forgotten someone. Logic said I'd been thorough, but logic always lost to the fear of leaving someone unprotected. So I'd begin again for however long it took to exhaust my fear of failing them. My therapist, Erin, sits listening, unexpected softness in her eyes. That's a lot of responsibility. I'd walked into our first session, taken one look at her and thought, nope, too young to understand my complicated brand of crazy. (laughs) I handed her names for the way my brain works, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. She wanted my story. There's genuine curiosity as she asks the usual questions. Family history of suicide? Yes, I watch her face, too. The day we buried my nephew, Luke, my family sat in a giant circle in my sister's living room as the sun sank. Funeral clothes loosened, drinks in hand, playing Never Have I Ever, spilling secrets like there's nothing to lose. Maybe some families come home from the cemetery, bow their heads, pray for healing, or sit silently watching TV, hoping a laugh track can drown out their sorrow. Mine played a drinking game. Being an aunt was the only thing I was ever certain I was good at, and it changed me. I was 14 when my oldest nephew, Lee, was born. Then came Jake, Jamie, Katie, and Luke. I loved these five tiny beings with a fierceness I was unprepared for. I took them every chance I could. Weekends, playdates with couch cushion forts, kazoo band concerts, treasure maps to candy I'd hidden in the woods. Even my move to LA couldn't put distance between us. Six months after the suicide of my 22-year-old nephew, Jake, I hid in the tiny backstock room at work to weep my way through lunch. I dial my brother Ryan's number because he's the freakout whisperer, always able to calm me like some MacGyver for the neurotic mind. How did I of all people not see it? I ask. You have OCD, not ESP. Sometimes I get pissed because he left. I stare at the ceiling because he took the out. I've been struggling longer. Less than a year later, Ryan will call me. My stomach sinks at the somber tone in his voice. No, I think. We've already done our time as if fate gives you some karmic punch card like Subway. He starts talking about Luke, Jake's little brother, the baby of our family. Something about a note, the woods. He's gone, Meg, Ryan tells me. I stand lightheaded and shaking. I know this is a bad dream, I say, but I don't know how to wake myself up. No, it's not. You need to get on a plane and come home. 
24 hours later, I sit on Luke's bedroom floor, stunned by the August heat and the shock of his suicide, staring at the post-it notes attached to his possessions, his tiny handwriting a gentle suggestion of who might like to have each object, his things packed to save us the trouble, funeral clothes ready. I picture him buying the post-its, walking through Walgreens as if everything is normal, smiling politely at the clerk as he pays for notes we'll read after his death. I see him walking into the woods behind his house for the last time, crickets singing in the early hours of morning, the sky a deep purple blue. Later, I'll think of his letter, its calm certainty, and imagine him feeling peace under a wide sky of bright stars. But that first night, I am shaken by the image of him alone in the dark as he leaves us. My sister Shannon makes guttural sounds, a mother calling for her young without words as my niece Katie and I hold each other soaked with sweat and tears. I think of all those nights behind locked bathroom doors, believing all my worry, all my walls could keep them safe. I was 10 when I realized my brain didn't work like everyone else's, I tell my therapist. I remember struggling to rid myself of all these lists, thoughts, and worries. So I developed this ritual of moving my hands through the air pretending to put the thoughts in a sack, tie them up, and throw them away. <laughs> it felt as batshit crazy as it sounds. Did it stop the thoughts, she asks? No, I say. Once on the way home from Girl Scouts, my friend saw my hand moving. She asked what I was doing. I couldn't breathe. It felt like a spotlight burning on this thing I couldn't understand, let alone explain. That's the first time I remember lying about who I was. Tell me about now, she says. My OCD is not the Hollywood kind, I explain. I don't wash my hands obsessively. My apartment is barely clean. Sometimes I wish I had that kind of compulsion. At least I'd have something to show for it. What's it like, she asks. Invisible, a different kind of perfectionism. My mind gives things weight beyond reason, repeatedly retracing the steps of every mistake always whispering that everything I do, every choice I make is wrong. Simple decisions become torture. Choosing a table this morning turned into Sophie's choice at Starbucks. The wrong lighting, the wrong feel, makes the inside of my skin itch. What about medication? I took Prozac for 20 years. I weaned off two years ago. I thought I could do it naturally, but then I moved back to Chicago, new job, dark apartment. I feel trapped by my own thoughts. I wake in the night, the freezing grip of panic, squeezing my heart, speeding its beat, stealing my breath to feel all the disasters I may face today, tomorrow, when I least expect it. Have you tried? I'm a closet hippie, I interrupt. I've taken deep breaths, eaten supplements. I do yoga and meditate every morning. It helps, but it's not enough. I never thought I'd take medication again. But at this point, I'd swallow whole pine cones to feel better. Despite losing two sons, my sister Shannon is the most tenaciously positive person I know. She taught me about the tyranny of hindsight, how we judge our past with the knowledge we couldn't possibly have had at the time. There are so many memories I've used as weapons. There's one afternoon I keep coming back to, late summer, Six months before Jake takes his life, the sun falling low over Shannon's back patio. I'm the awkward ambassador of mental health at her request. Jake was creative, funny, mercurial. 
When he traded his blonde afro and VW bus for a buzz cut in the Marine Corps, I was scared. When he managed to get himself released from boot camp, I was relieved. Now, for the first time in his life, our brave boy seems lost. The three of us discussed medication, how it might help him, how it had helped me. I don't want people to know my business, Jake tells us decided. They're therapists, I say, shifting uncomfortably. They'll only know what you tell them. I'll spend months punishing myself for being too ashamed of my own truth to keep talking. It'll take years to recognize these words as the mantra I've whispered to myself since I was 10. They'll only know what you tell them. The summer after Jake's suicide, I take Luke to lunch at his favorite, the Chinese buffet. <laughs> Determined not to make the mistake I made with his brother to openly discuss for the first time the OCD we have in common. I used to pray obsessively for hours before medication. I twirl my straw in nervous circles, reminding myself to breathe. What's it like for you, I ask, feeling as though I'm asking him to empty the deepest pockets of who he is as strangers walk by carrying plates of overcooked crab legs. I'd watched him grow from scrawny, silly nine-year-old following me around with Charlie the Unicorn videos to the shy but wickedly funny 17-year-old valedictorian. It's been pretty bad lately, he says. If my best friend uses my cell phone, I want to throw it in Nevada bleach afterwards. Have you thought about medication? I try to sound casual. It doesn't cure it, but it helps. I don't see myself taking medication for the rest of my life. My heart is racing with the things I've asked. Sorry about the genetic hand-me-down. <laughs> he smiles, and I let the topic drop, grateful to move on. The server brings our fortune cookies. Seven years later, I still have that tiny slip of paper. Days after his death, I sit on the edge of Shannon's bed holding Luke's last letter. I learn he didn't want to write it. He did it for us after seeing the agony of Jake's noteless exit. My stomach turns to read the suffering he'd hidden. The depth and darkness of his struggle was well disguised. He wants us to know it's nothing we did, that he knew how much he was loved, that nothing, no one could have saved him. In his words, I recognize the harsh voice of distorted self-judgment. I recognize myself. I realize for the first time that voice is not the truth of who he was or who I am. And this paper-thin space between my identity and the darkness is his last unintentional gift to me. I cry like a child, unable to untangle the regret sorrow, and strange gratitude that I got to know this beautiful soul for even a short time. The day of Luke's funeral, my brother, in an attempt to stop my ceaseless weeping, takes me to get blue slushies, Luke's favorite drink for everyone gathered at Shannon's house. As the sun sinks, my family sits in a giant circle in my sister's living room, playing Never Have I Ever, spilling secrets like there's nothing to lose. My eyes puffy from crying as the people I love most blurt hilarious, embarrassing truths, their lips bright blue and curving upward. Our unfiltered honesty, the best antidote to the secrecy of suicide. They'll only know what you tell them. I've thought about it, I say to Erin, staring out the window of her office. 
escape routes that'll do the least damage to my family. Carefully planned accidents. What stops you, she asks. I always come back to Shannon's couch the day after Luke died. Katie in my lap sobbing for her baby brother saying, it was my job to protect him. And my nephew Lee staring into space realizing out loud, he doesn't have any more brothers. I think of my family, the humor and honesty, all the dark and beautiful shit we've gone through. Leaving this life would just mean chasing them through the next. I turn my eyes to hers. I read Luke's letter, recognize the voice of his illness, my illness. All of those things anchor me. What I don't tell her is on days when the tyranny of hindsight roars loudest, I take out the fortune I got at that lunch with Luke. It says, continue this conversation for valuable insight. I didn't then, but I am now. This story was produced by Sydney Ockler, curated by Deb Lewis, directed by Lexi Saunders, and music and sound designed by Jeff Schaller and Shane Longben. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oaf. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oaf, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.